I'm here with Mike Benitez of the Merge newsletter, and we'll talk about some of his articles as well as the headlines from the world of acquisition. So we'll start off, and the first one we're going to do is on digital twinning. This week, the Air Force pulled two F-16s from the Boneyard, beginning its multi-year journey to build a digital twin of the Viper. First, let's cover what digital twin is not. For our Boomer readers, it's not a rebranded CAD. For our Gen Z readers, no, it's not an NFT either. Actually, before we get into what it is, what is CAD and what is an NFT and why aren't they, why aren't they it? Oh, we didn't even get uh, through the first part. So, so CAD, computer design, that's uh, like 1980s uh, 3D design on a computer. And then your, your NFT, non-fungible token. So that's your blockchain pictures, basically. That's the newest thing going on in the, uh, the crypto world right now. So you think a, a JPEG on the blockchain that's selling for uh, you know, $100,000. Uh, that's actually going on right now. So that's what it is. Hey, don't you get jealous of those 13-year-olds who like, sell hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of NFTs? And you're like, man, <laughs> what did I get into? But you could put a CAD design on an NFT, right? <laughs> I guess you could. Yeah, that's like a triple stamping a double stamp. So... Let's talk about what it is. A twin is a virtual representation that serves as a real-time digital counterpart of a physical object or process. This connection lets them co-evolve via data feedback loops, meaning the digital twin is a living clone based on a single source of data. So then you kind of break it down. There's three types of uh, digital twins. There's the product, the production, and the performance. Do you want to kind of go through this? I, I actually hadn't seen it broken down that way before, but it, it seemed to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that there's a few ways that you can break it down, but you have the twin and then you have the twins and then you have the thing that connects them all together. So the, the first thing is a digital twin. And I, I've heard this used a lot more in the past few years. Dr. Roper's manifesto thing had that in there, but I don't think people outside of uh, certain circles understood what that actually meant. So the key word in the definition that you read out is uh, real time. So there has to be a real time connection between the physical world uh, and the virtual world. So that's the real thing and the, the twin in the digital world. And so by having that connection, that means that they can co-evolve. So if you're looking at it from a factory standpoint, uh, a digital twin would let feed real-time happenings on your factory floor back into a model that then you could evolve the model to explore alternatives, whether it's you know main assembly steps or the, the steps within the steps. So I'm going to you know, twist to the left, pick up the thing with my left hand and do something, whether it's a machine or a person. So that's kind of what the, that connection between them. So it has to be, it's a living clone basically, basically off of that, that single source of data. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then you can use it. I kind of said it before, but you can use it at the component level uh, or the machine level, or you can scale it up to you know a plant. You can apply it to supply chains and workflows. So your processes and designing and then in your operations and sustainment model, you can do that too. So it's been used in a lot of different industries over the past probably 20 years. It actually dates to the Apollo program, go figure. But the concept, we haven't really used it much in the Department of Defense lately, but it's growing, it's, it's growing interest and there's definitely a value in the data. So your automotive manufacturers use them mostly in the design stage. And there's a few other companies and things around the world that have used them, whether it's uh, GE for in their engine plant, they use them or Ford uses them as well in their one of their uh, car plants. Uh, so that's the twin. And if you have a digital twin of the, the design, the manufacturing, the operations and the sustainment, 
now you can connect, say, those three or four digital twins together. And the thing that connects them all together is the digital thread. So that's the other term that's kind of, they go hand in hand, but they're not the same thing. And like when I, let's just say I'm going through an overhaul or I, I got some like spares and repairs I'm doing, would that actually show up on the digital twin as well? Well, I think it in the case, so in the case of the, the CEF-16, I thought, I thought it was interesting because yeah, at first glance, if you if you build a digital twin of a bent up decrepit F sixteen in the from the boneyard, it's probably not very useful because it's at the end of its life. But the process of them creating the digital model, I think that's where the learning and the value is. And so they're you know by pulling an F sixteen, which is a pretty simple aircraft, and they're not even touching the engine part of it; it's just the fuselage. Uh, I think that's where the value is now. What that lets you do uh, is move to things for like predictive maintenance, where instead of having set times where, hey, at 200 hours, I have to pull these panels and do these inspections at 400 hours. And it's very, it's very binned into things. You can do it based on the performance of the aircraft. Hey, the past 200 hours, this aircraft, you know, flew low Gs and long sorties. So it was just in the air a long time, not doing much. You know, think of like flying over Iraq or Afghanistan. It's a very low G, low airframe stress environment, but to the maintenance, that's, it treats every hour the same, whether it's at nine G's the whole time or at one G the whole time. And so having a, a digital twin allows you to feed back into a model to do your engineering analysis and be able to do predictive maintenance and hopefully shape and make your more, shape your future maintenance and make it more effective to keep your aircraft serviceable and Cool. And then just like the last one, you had the digital twin performance. Is that really just like, that's like modeling and simulation type stuff that people have been doing for a while or? Yeah. Yeah. That's it, it, the way that I interpret it. That's kind of what that is. But again, you go for performance and you can use performance to, to adjust like things like airframe life and things like that. And so if I have a, an F-16 that did, you know, six seasons in the Thunderbirds is probably under a lot more duress than, you know, an F-16 at Shaw Air Force Base. Got it. Well, let's move on to the next one here, which is on command and control. And so you kind of pulled out all the C2 types of definitions for each of the services and we'll go through them and then we'll kind of hone in on the Air Force one. So, so here are the main C2 definitions you need to know. Mission command from the Army. Provide the what and the why, but not that. Command by negation from the Navy. Use initiative, report intentions, noting the actions will be taken unless otherwise directed. And then centralized control, decentralized execution from the Air Force. And you said it's complicated. <laughs> so why is it complicated for the Air Force? Get into that a little bit. What is this centralized control, decentralized execution in, in the C2 context? Yeah, so uh, so it actually goes way back to uh, World War II. And it's more of a policy in doctrine is kind of how it started. So the centralized control was that air power shouldn't be penny packeted and assigned to individual army units. It should be centralized because there's more, it's a finite resource. And so the best way to efficiently use it is to centralize the control of it and then to distribute it when it need, where it needs to go, when it needs to go based on priorities. And so you do that over a theater instead of uh, you know a parking lot or a block or a city even, you do it over a theater. And then the decentralized execution is once those forces are told to go do something, they go do it. That's that's kind of how it started. It's it's kind of evolved a little bit into what, well, it's changed in the past uh, few months. And that was kind of the reason I wrote the article. I don't think most people picked up on that. We actually, the Air Force actually rewrote 
its command and control doctrine ethos. And the fact that I didn't really get a whole lot of coverage was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, I'll just let this go for a few months. And interestingly, I didn't hear anything at the at the AFA that was just, uh, you know, we just had last week about it. So now I didn't hear people about them talking about it. And with uh, JADC2 or ABMS or any of these other C2 acronyms that are all the rage right now, I'm actually surprised that we didn't take the opportunity to say, like, we're thinking about it in a new way. We have to evolve. And the new part of centralized control, decentralized execution is the the thing right in between. And so now there's a there's centralized command, distributed control, and decentralized execution. And so command is centralized at the theater level. When applicable, you can delegate control and distribute it out to your forces, knowing that when push comes to shove in a high-end fight, like all of our, our communication lines will probably be severed or at least contested. And but your forces don't have to wait around to do something. They have they have their authorities to execute in that distributed control and decentralized execution. The other funny part about that is that it's almost like a it's almost like a loop because the the in execution of distributed control, the Air Force doctrine actually says to embrace mission command. And you go, oh my goodness, we've come full circle. Come full circle with what? The army? Yeah, back to the army, which is the <laughs> army's ethos. That came, that's not even that old. That, that's probably 15 years old or so. I think it was General Dempsey is the one who released. I think the army's still trying to figure out what to do with it, even though they say it's, you know, they embrace mission command and embrace mission command. But I know in the Air Force, we definitely do not embrace mission command, the ethos, but it takes time. It's a culture. It takes time to change and it's due for change. Yeah. The army, yeah, they're kind of following up on that, but I believe it was the Navy or the, uh, the Marines, right? That kind of with MCDP one, they were really kind of starting, you know, take the mission command culture seriously. It's, I guess it's good that the Air Force is starting to do it. It's not surprising that they would come a little bit later, but ultimately, you know, it's a good it, it seems to make sense, especially within the JADC2 context, because you keep hearing, especially like, you know, folks in the Air Force have been saying, you know, at the senior levels, we can't just like have decisions route through the situation room, you know, in the White House before every strike. Like that's not going to be, you know, a useful construct in the future. And, you know, even in the the German army back before World War One, even understood, OK, I have the technology, right? I have the technology with with telegraph to be able to know where my armies are at, but he still like delegated most of that. Just like he gave a brief description of what he needed done and just like would only report back every week or so, something like that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. The decentralized or distributed control aspect here seems to be, you know, the big part, right? You know, what was the difference between centralized command and distributed control? Can you just like define the command First, the control part uh, of that is one just intent and the other is actual like moving of units to specific objectives. Yeah. So I would, I would say that applied traditionally, the centralized command dis distributed control is retained under the centralized command. So it kind of looks like the legacy centralized control, decentralized execution. But I think that there, the big difference is when you apply agile combat employment, that's where that middle block comes away from centralized command and centralized command or centralized control turns into centralized command. And then it creates this distributed control mechanism. And so that, uh, that's where I think the ACE model that's still nascent, they're still uh, developing it. Uh, the Air Force is working on it, but it's a bigger part. So there's this doctrine change, there's agile combat employment, which is a concept. 
And then there's the Air Force Generation model, which is General Brown had released probably four or five months ago publicly. And that's about putting the, the Air Force in kind of embracing a tiered readiness approach in four bins, which is kind of what the other services do. They just don't call it that. The bigger that a four bin model is a lead wing certification that the, the Air Force is still working on right now, but basically it would be the way to, to exercise and certify deploying units or units that are going to be deployable to execute distributed control. So all this stuff is, it, it's still in the early stages, but it's, you can kind of see, you can connect the dots between the three or four different concepts and initiatives, and they're all starting to take shape at the same time. And they all depend on one another. So <laughs> You can kind of read the tea leaves and see where it's going to be going in the next. If I was a bet man, I'd say in about 12 months, you'll probably see something come out of that. Well, you know, we also kind of have this same idea in the bureaucracy or the acquisition bureaucracy side. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, actually, when he was just a young scholar, he wrote a thing on policy versus administration. And he was like, it's the role of policy, such as in Congress, to make the broad objectives of government. And it's the job of administration to go, you know, bring that about and figure out how to do it. Interestingly enough, he put army and navy departments or the war department back then under the administration piece. So it wasn't the realm of, of policy, but we've definitely seen, you know, an acquisition role with the PBBE, right? Or the triple PBE. That's right. It's the triple P. Come on now. <laughs> triple P for the politics. That The whole idea there was just like the policymaker would just be like, I need a new aircraft that goes this fast at this high and, you know, can do these things. And then it would just be acquisition to go figure it out, right? To go execute. But it, it seems like that didn't really work so well. It's like, you really have to have pretty broad intent and then really trust people with training, go make it work right. <laughs> so oh, absolutely. That's uh, in this model that, that distributed control, there's definitely a training aspect. You know, we're going to be asking in the Air Force, you know, we're going to be asking wings, which are not typically deployable the units so over the past you know 30 years almost 30 years the air force has used the deployment model we cr we basically create a mirror image of a wing a shell of a wing deployed and we just rotate units through them and so the wing if you're a wing commander in you know pick a state georgia you don't actually deploy with your units deployed to a deployed wing that has no units and so this model basically realigns that and it says, no, the wing, a wing element will have to deploy if these units deploy. There's no time to go build a base in the desert. And that's really why the distributed control came about is if we're going to deploy a wing to be a lead wing for a command and control element to execute distributed control when needed, then he has to go forward. So he'll be a wing commander leaving his you know, so no longer is he just the town mayor of the, the home base. He's also a operational relevant and deployable. Most wing commanders, almost all wing commanders in the Air Force are not, which I don't think most uh, people who are not in the Air Force understand. That's interesting. Do you think that's uh, almost a slight step away from the kind of combatant command version of like the services just equip and then they just send the units off to the combatant commander who might be elsewhere. What do you think? Well, so there's, well, there's force generation, which is kind of the, what I was talking about. Like, how do we build up the forces to have these capabilities to, to, you know, for the combatant commanders? So there's force generation and then there's force presentation is how you present the forces. And so if you're in the, the Navy, you present forces as a carrier strike group. 
you know, if you are in the Marine Corps, you present forces as a, a MU or a MEF or a MEB. And if you're in the army, it's uh, brigade combat teams, if I'm not mistaken, but right. the air force, we don't have a thing that we can give you. And so that's what part of this is we're building a generation model to tr spin up people and certify them and sign off that, yes, you are ready to deploy, to do these things and go into this presentation model, which is, uh, which is, again, they're kind of connected, but slightly different. One of them is how you present the forces. So, you know, I need X amount of, uh, multi-role squadrons, X amount of air superiority squadrons. And I need a bomber squadron, you know, okay. That's, you know, that's a, a widget or that's a bucket. And so you would present forces in that construct, which isn't really that different than, you know, a carrier strike group. If you go, Hey, I need one carrier strike group. What do you get? You get a, you know, a carrier sub and, you know, all the other ships that go with it. And so you're building in these force presentation models. And that's kind of what part of that. Cool. Let's move on to the next one that you did. And this one's on the national security strategy. So here we go. You may have slept through it, but the White House released an interim national security strategy guidance back a few months ago, which basically reshuffled some of the words in the 2017 NFS. No surprises or changes, except that climate is mentioned 27 times. By comparison, China only had 15 name drops. While drastic changes aren't expected, here are five things we think or hope will be in the 2022 NDS, so the National Defense Strategy kind of stems from the National Security Strategy, of course, that weren't in the 2018 version. So one is strategic competition, two is military civilian fusion, three is integrated deterrence, four, expanded maneuver, and five, make it a strategy. Is there any of one of those that you wanted to expand on? Well, you know, dealer's choice. Well, I'll say this is uh, the third and fourth one. So integrated deterrence and expanded maneuver. Yeah, you got me. Who knows what they are? There's a the integrated <laughs> deterrence. There's a really great net assessment podcast that's for more on the rocks where Chris, Melanie, and Zach have this really good debate. It's about an hour long, just debating of what is integrated deterrence. Like, what the hell is that? And they, they pull a whole bunch of sound bites and they, it's a really, it's a really great listen. So I want a podcast plug another podcast. Probably shouldn't do that. So <laughs> we're, we're yeah. all about expanding the good NatSec podcast here. Yeah, that episode was from like early August. So yeah, it was about six, six, seven weeks ago, something like that. And then actually just talk about strategic competition then, because like that seemed to be what the 2018 version was about. Why wasn't it good enough for you? Well, yeah, this actually came up the, the last time we recorded a pod. The last time we talked about, no, it's, it's not about deterrence. It's about compelment. Like you're trying to force someone. So the idea, I wish, you know, we had an opportunity for what, three years now, almost four years to actually someone come out and just tell us what it is. What is the definition of strategic competition? The, the Department of Defense has never defined it. There's no definition. It doesn't exist. There's ideas that we must, we're in a near peer competition and all that stuff, but no one actually says what a strategic competition is. So it's not really about the E-ring. It's more about the C-suite. So the concept actually is from the early 80s, corporate America. And, and it basically, it was a way that you could manipulate the environment to accelerate a change that you had anticipated. That's really what strategic competition is. So it's about ma manipulating the environment to accelerate a change that you've anticipated. And so the real value is, I talked about it, I've written about it before, about the, the one element of strategic competition that makes it different than anything else is time. And so it creates time compression by creating shifts that either may never have happened or they would have happened many years. And it accelerates that. 
and it makes it unacceptable to your competitor. So it's a very deliberate process with a lot of careful considerations and have, it's very tightly reasoned. And so that's kind of the essence of what it is. And I don't think most people understand what, like if you apply that to some of the things that we're doing and if you say, okay, apply it with a strategic competition model, like almost no one could answer that question. So that's what I hope is in the new one is someone actually like put some thought into defining it and giving some really good examples of what, of how that manifests or has manifested historically. And there's a couple of examples. Most of them, they're, most of them you really wouldn't want to talk about, but there are some, there's a couple that you could highlight there that are like a really good example of I'm doing something to elicit a response. Am I doing that? They're taking time and resources away from something I didn't want them to do. And they're doing something that they have to do to respond to me. And so that's kind of what uh, strategic competition is about. Is that clear as mud? Yeah, mud's pretty clear. You know, <laughs> what I, it feels like though, like what you're asking for, like the, na- the national security strategy and the NDS itself are supposed to be kind of top level policy documents. And then that inform the programming process in the budget as to what a specific program looks like. It seems like what you're asking for is a process or a method by which programs are kind of, I guess, attached to the strategy in some way, shape or form, because of course, all of those, that strategic competition stuff that you're talking about is contextual, right? It's like based on each system or each domain or on each kind of use case. And so I wonder, you know, is that what you're almost asking for here? Kind of because like a lot of people will complain, they'll be like, well, whatever programs you already are working on, you could probably just draw a line from that thing to whatever the strategy is, no matter what is written, right? It, and so it does there just need to be like that tighter, like I like what you said there, right? Something that enables you, like something you're, that you're anticipating that will enable you to have a like strategic edge in the future, should you bring it about? Like, is that kind of the, the method that programs should be connected to strategy? Yeah, they should be connected to strategy. That's the whole point. I mean, that's the whole point of having a strategy and then you spend money and resources on, which is kind of one of the other tenets that we talked about. Like if I would, it would be nice if the national defense strategy was actually a strategy, <laughs> which is that the fifth, it was the fifth bullet I had there. I think yeah, we can jump into that one if you want. Sure. Yeah. Talk about that one. Cause I've also had this kind of quandary where, well, you want to be able to provide intent that's general enough, but then it's like, Ultimately, you end up writing it so general that it doesn't allow you to retire certain things. It doesn't allow you to, you know, initiate new programs. And it's just like the kind of status quo just keeps going. Yep, that's right. So so in that in that article, actually, the I just hyperlinked the book instead of explaining it. It's a fantastic book. It's called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. It's by Richard, I believe it's who it is. But basically, the whole book is summed up by, by and it identifies, you know, hundreds of examples of businesses historically, you know, commercial businesses that, you know, had a strategy and failed and they go, well, actually it wasn't a strategy and here's why. And you can see how they pick apart the market dynamics and their competitors. And it's really good when you start seeing, you know, dozens and dozens of examples of what bad strategy looks like, the good ones start to jump out at you without looking too hard. So the book summarized it as, as a kernel, the strategy, a good strategy has a kernel of three elements. It has a, a diagnosis, a guiding policy and a coherent action. And so the diagnosis is like, you know, what the hell is really going on here? The approach, which is how are we going to deal with that diagnosis? And then the coherent action, which is the, I have coordinated policies, I have resource commitments, and I have the willpower to see those through to implement them. And so that's the, I mean, it's obviously that's kind of generic, but 
you know, the whole point is that you find a, a you look for the asymmetries and then you identify which one of those you can turn into an advantage. And then you basically focus all of your resources on that asymmetry to build an advantage. So, you, and then the ones that you say that you look and you go, oh, I don't have an advantage here. You don't want to, you don't want to put resources into it. You want to sidestep it. So that's the big part of it. And that kind of gets into the competitive advantage, which is once you built that advantage, then you have to create a isolating mechanism. So that's the competitive advantage. So I want to build a, a moat around my advantage to isolate it. So people can't be fast followers and just follow us. And so when you go, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to out innovate our, our adversaries. That was a pretty, that was a pretty good uh, statement I've heard a senior leader say, or hey, we're, we need to invest more money in the hypersonics. Like, well, that's, it's not a strategy. Uh, that's kind of an arms. The strategy, it, you know, when you look at China, it's on the things that they can't copy us. And so, you know, human rights, climate change, their social consciousness and their standing in the world. Those are the things that are, that we have a competitive advantage. And that's where, if we focus our resources, that's how you start you turning something into a strategy. Now, how that applies in the national defense strategy is gets very complicated very quickly. As it turns out, the defense is only one of the levers of you know, instruments of power that we have to pull. That's interesting. It almost feels like you're saying you, you almost have to bring it back to, you know, more baser things and that to find your advantage. Like ours is a liberal democracy and markets, right? <laughs> like what else do we have like advantage in, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, when you look at, so step one, uh, know your, your, know your competitor, right? So if you look at China, you know, they have the 2049 plan and that coincides with the, the hundred year anniversary of the Republic of China. And if you actually, you look at that and you compare that to the decline in their population over time. So right about the time that they hit their, their world-class military, and there's a quote of what their actual goal is, but world-class military is one of them. And then it fits into the larger, like global economic superpower, peaceful nation, you know, spreading communism, uh, spreading socialism all over the world. That's kind of like their long-term goal. But if you look at that and you compare that timeline with their population, their one child policy that they've had for a while, they're going to start aging out. And so they're going to peak at their population in the next few years. And then it's going to start dying down and you're going to see it on the back end for the rest of the century. They're going to lose, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of their population. And so I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said if, you know, if you can do things to delay their rise long enough. Again, this is a long game. This is not, you know, election cycle strategies. You know, this is multi-generational strategies. That's where I don't think we have the right time horizons when we start focusing on a lot of our things that we're working on. But that's a whole other topic. Yeah, I, right. I, we're getting off track all over the place. Here. Well, to stay off track a little bit, I, I got the China Talk uh, newsletter here. And, oh, that's a great newsletter. And they had a, a nice little chart of that age group distribution just today. Oh, you nice. Know, I, didn't, yeah. I, you know, I didn't even open it yet. I should have opened it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It looks like their cohort under 44 actually started decline about a decade ago. And now it's like that 45 to 64 that's ballooning and 65 plus uh, that's starting to bloom. So, you know, that's definitely going to be a structural problem that will come to roost at some point in the future. Uh, still, yeah. still a little bit off, but they'll probably have that that Japan moment kind of yeah, come uh -oh. up. Yeah, they're, they're uh-oh, that was a mistake. I think maybe <laughs> their, their recent change in social media policies for kids, maybe that's one of the reasons they're doing is to get them to actually interact with each other more. 
which then will build relationships within create families, which then create, you know, the next generation of people. So maybe it's about birth rates through, you know, taking the computers out of there. Yeah. Well, they can also compel. I mean, they got rid of the one child policy, but like, I, I think they can, you know, stimulate if they wanted to have three, four, five kids per person. I'm sure that the Chinese government could bring that about if they really wanted to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so let's talk about some interesting and compelling things. Uh, interesting. The Air Force Reserve Command landed a C-130 on a highway in Wyoming. Compelling. The Air Force Special Ops Command is moving forward to rapidly prototype a way to land a C-130 on the water. So you want to talk a little bit about each one? What's the use cases and importance here? Oh, I love this. I love this. So, you know, this, oh, God bless the C-130. You know where the C-130 came from? It was made in 1959 by Lockheed, right? Yeah, yeah. But do you know why it was developed? No. Ah, so it's fascinating. So the engineering requirements for the C-130 came out of the Korean War where we didn't have a good way to transport people and equipment intra-theater on, you know, dirt strips and rugged terrain. And so the 30 was built out of the fallout from the Korean War for logistics. And it's mm-hmm. so it was overbuilt for everything. And obviously we've updated it and done things along the way to make it what it is now. But the, the top one, like, you know, it lands on a highway. Great. Like, you know what? Like these things were landing in, you know, the, the amount of things that we were doing as C-130s, laying on a highway is interesting. We've done it before. We land them on the dirt. It's not that big of a deal. But we have not landed one on the water. It's uh, this, uh, the concept, it's basically putting uh, skis uh, on a C-130 and the skis have little wheels, you know, the artist's depiction of it. But this concept actually goes back probably 40, 45 years back to the Cold War. This was actually a concept that Lockheed had. Never, it was never developed, but they had some, some prototype drawings and, and stuff. Uh, so you can go back and do some uh, image history search and find it from the, the 80s. I really want to see this thing happen because it, what, what a refreshing view it is. Like, let's try to do this. We can do this. Like we put a man on the moon, we can put a C-130 on the water. All right. Like we can do this. <laughs> is that just for relevance in the Pacific? Well, I think it's relevance everywhere. And so yeah. you can, it obviously opens the doors for uh, the Pacific is the, you know, the big one, but obviously the, the world is mostly water. And it gives you a lot of options. That'll be interesting to see what you're trading because, you know, it's an airplane. So anything that flies is a compromise. So it'll be really interesting to see what the trade-offs for range and, and range speed and weight to actually have that capability. Even better if you could, if you could take them off and put them inside and, you know, when you don't need them. So I don't know, we'll see what happens with it, but it's, you know, you're putting those things on and you could do, you can do some interesting things with them. When you look at like, you know, a C-130 getting, you know, landing somewhere to get refueled from a, and then continue on its way. So it kind of, there's some interesting things that you can do. I don't need a tanker. I just need a, I can have a ship somewhere, meet us in the water. Same thing with, you know, getting supplies, you know, I can get supplies off of some other vessel in the water and use it for that. I can use it for pick up people. I can use it to deploy people, things like that. So yeah, I want to see it happen. What about, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of some of the random, just like, let's just try things out, you know, and see if it works. And it probably won't spend too much money, but we'll learn a lot, right? I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, maybe one, maybe they'll put the gremlins in the back of it too. There's another use case for it. <laughs> it's almost, it's as good as having something like um, an autonomous delivery vehicle for those things somewhere. But, yeah, I think this is a, this is an interest. A, you know, I'm a big fan of 
you know, looking at what we have and where, how can we repurpose the things that we've already invested in? Uh, so small changes to make big differences. Uh, that's why I love this so much. So <laughs> I want to see it happen. I hope someone uh, makes sure it happens. Too bad. they Now they just need to get the, the C5 to land on water, right? They can't even, they can't, they can't even get it in the air. <laughs> Their readiness rates. It's so old. That's you know, it's probably why we didn't use it for, uh, well, we didn't use it for any of the Afghanistan withdrawal. The C-17 was the perfect aircraft to do it. They were awesome. Hats off to those guys. Yeah, C5, it probably would have broke down somewhere. I guess that's the fear. Yeah, they were only doing intermediate stage kind of yeah. lift on the C5, I thought. And yeah, but that's, that's kind of a, a bad news story, right? Because the whole point of the C5 was to be able to like deploy anywhere rapidly in on unimproved ground, right? And land there and, and, and move stuff off. But, you know, that's just a massive freaking aircraft. Oh, it's huge. And I mean, they're getting older. I mean, the C17 is, uh, is it's far younger. Yeah, that was 80s, so it probably got deployed. Like IOC was in the early 90s, something like that. Uh, C17? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, they actually just closed the uh, production line down, which is funny. <laughs> they uh, closed the production line down from uh, Lockheed, and it was the next year the Air Force came out with it. We need more C17 squadrons. I was like, oh, that's great. I love it. Here we go. First flight, 91. Introduction, 95 for the C17. And then the C5 right was anymore. definitely 65 is when it started. <laughs> yeah. So it was like 1972. Like, but yeah, I mean, the C, I mean, the C, they've gone under a lot more different models, new builds and all that kind of stuff. You know, they, they had like a red team not too long ago on, on the J where it was just like, they still had like the same like tooling and equipment from like the sixties or whatever that they were using. And it was just like they were, they were looking at whether they had to revamp the whole like supply chain and stuff like that. So let's move on to some to some acquisition headlines. Air Force's top civilian hints at changes to hypersonic weapons programs from Defense News. It's pretty clear to me what the Chinese want to do with the hypersonics they're developing. It's even pretty clear what to me what the Russians might want to do with their hypersonics, Kendall said. The targets that we would want to address and why hypersonics are the most cost-effective weapon for the U.S., I think it's still, to me, somewhat of a question mark. He added, I haven't seen all the analysis that's been done to justify the current program. And another article here asked the Air Force signals hypersonic doubts. Key Sanders want to go faster from breaking defense. The committee believes that the DOD needs to focus more attention on expediting development and maturation of key hypersonic flight technologies. Mark Lewis, who formerly spearheaded hypersonic research at DOD's uh, research and engineering, told Breaking Defense that he agrees vehemently with the SASC's position rather than the message coming from the Air Force. I'm puzzled that the Air Force might be pulling back because we had done extensive studies and extensive analysis that demonstrate quite clearly the effectiveness of these systems, said Lewis. So this is a little interesting story here about because everyone's been gung-ho on hypersonics and now uh, the new SECAF, Frank Kendall, is kind of potentially pumping their brakes or asking for the analysis to go, that goes behind it. But I, I guess I want to kind of, you know, poke you on this kind of, it seems like, you know, Roper's kind of going back to the requirements approach here and saying like, okay, well, what were the real requirements? You know, it seems like the, the hypersonics kind of got started in this technology push or just like, well, China was doing it, so we need to do it, right? You know, I guess, where do you kind of land on that, like that requirements front? Like are hypersonics at that stage that they should have that requirement if it's not already there or you know, should they be kind of left to a little bit more time, I guess, in a general kind of philosophical point of view? Yes, those are all good questions. I think that the, you know, it's funny when you go, the last quote, we talked about, you know, clearly we've done, these studies show the effectiveness of the system. I don't think anyone is 
that's not the question. It's not the effectiveness of the system. It's the ability to employ them at scale to the targets that warrant the you know hypersonic designation versus a supersonic weapon versus a subsonic weapon. And so what are the, what are those weapons what are those targets that warrant this hypersonic status? Because you know if, when you look at the Air Force's hypersonics, they're not small. And so there's only a few platforms that can carry them anyways. And it turns out when those platforms are carrying this, they're probably not carrying three or four other things that are maybe supersonic or subsonic. And so if you start trading subsonics for hypersonics and it's, you know, four to one or five to one or six to one, you know, now we've got 10 targets. So we're going to, however, I don't know what the latest arrow price is, but hey, it's $7 million a weapon and we have 10, 10 targets and 10 weapons. Like, well, great. We just spent $70 million employing one salvo and, you know, a billion dollars developing it to hit 10 targets that I don't know, maybe, I don't know what those 10 targets might be. And maybe that's the question mark is what are those, what are the targets that we need a hypersonic versus we want a hypersonic? And I think that's what he's trying to find out. So all great questions. Yeah, obviously, if we had a 5,000 mile hypersonic weapon that could fit on every aircraft that flies, that would be great. Uh, but that's not reality though. Well, it's interesting. You know, I think it was just today that we got news that the hypersonic air breathing weapons concept, the Hawk, actually had a successful flight and that's the one of the raytheon missiles yeah um, that's, I just saw that's that. a more simple one i think than the the arrow right it's uh, yeah that's a simple. yeah the the arrow is a boost glide but the other one's a, a scramjet right so they different profiles different sizes different ranges different speeds so altitude speed profiles are different so just two different classes of hypersonics you know it, it hits mach 5 so it's you know technically a hypersonic it goes hypersonic but when and where and how long it's that those are the kind of the variable. Yeah. And then the other part of that is kind of like bridging the operational piece in terms of like, how big is it? How does it get like stowed and how does it get maintained and all this type of stuff that you have to think about. And so here's a, an interesting article. The air force is testing robotic loaders to mount hypersonic missiles on its bombers from the drive. Enter the MHUTSX, a robotic loading system that does the job more quickly and almost autonomously, hauling these big weapons around and loading them on aircraft, even at the kinds of austere airfields from which the Air Force is likely to fight in future campaigns against peer or near-peer adversaries. The AGM-183A Air Launch Rapid Response Weapon, or Aero, for example, for which the Beach Stratofortress is set to be the primary launch platform, is set to carry is set to be carried on a new Boeing developed underwing pylon named Hercules is the pylon. And then you have an automatic loader. So these are two different systems. And then the Hercules, each of which will be able to hold three arrows, the effort resulting in collaboration with the AFWorks Innovation Initiative. So here's a little interesting thing. It'll be interesting to see. I guess they'll be able to put two of these Hercules per B-52H and potentially six arrows. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. I can't speak to uh, the numbers actually. Yeah, I don't know. But that's a. It's interesting anyway. But it, it kind of reminds me of the army. There, they have their Paladin autonomous kind of reloading system that they've been working on. But here's another thing that, you know, if you introduce a hypersonic weapon, that's going to be a lot of complexity, and you know, there might be fears of if you have to take it apart or put it back together or however you have, you know, get it to the field and then get it, you know, ready on the bomber. You know, there might be you know, mishaps or other things. And how do you automate that? And now you have all these other costs 
in addition to just the missile round itself, right? Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, I, I speed read the article that you're talking about, and you know, it's kind of a if you apply the technology or the concept of how like when you go to the the cargo docking station on the the ISS. You know, so we have like a module that you know lines itself up automatically and you know goes to the airlock and all that. It's kind of the same way where you know you the you have a weapon and it has lugs and the pylon has lugs, like it should be able to find a way to align those so it's within you know an inch or so and you could finish the the installation instead of the process now, which is you know, people and multi multiple people on a load that are supporting the up, down, left, right, forward, aft to you know basically guide a munition on manually by with a joystick. So there's definitely ways to automate that. When you get I know I, most people would say that we're kind of going backwards with support equipment. This is actually a not a small piece of support equipment, but you know, a hypersonic weapon isn't small either, and neither is a B-52. And so this is not. This is like a home base, uh, not a bear base type of uh, thing. This is a you know, home base installation. Like it's out there on the ramp and uh, still got a ways to go. It looks like it's been a, a prototype for a couple of years, but yeah, anything we could do to do something faster, safer with less people, let's do it. Northrop Grumman now has five B-21 stealth bombers in production from Defense News. As I speak, there are now five test aircraft being manufactured on the B-21 production line at Air Force Plant 42 in Palmdale, California, he, Kendall said. You will never hear me make optimistic predictions about programs. All programs have risk and the same is true of the B-21. But at this point, at least, the program is making good progress to field real capability. So it, it's unclear uh, how close Northrop Grumman is to finishing construction on the first B-21. But apparently there's five kind of in, in various stages of production right now. And I think the previous estimate had been two that were kind of in production. So I think it was three was the press release publicly. I think it was three. Could be wrong. It was okay. two or three. It was not five. So that's uh, that was news. So it's interesting to see if the EMD contract was two or three and then the these other two are follow on of another contract or who knows. But instead of speculating on that, <laughs> I'd like to speculate on its first flight. So everyone's been saying, senior leaders have been saying it's the first flight will occur in 2022. So I want to, you know what? We should come up with a betting pool it has 365 openings and everyone gets the better day. I don't know what you win, but it's got to happen one of those days, unless the program isn't as good progressing as well as it's advertised. Well, then it'll be 2023. Yeah. There is that concept of what is it? It's it, it, prediction markets, right? And you could have people like bet on what the schedule is of a project. And then you could like almost like tether their APB or something, their current estimate on the APB to whatever that prediction is. But the problem is, again, it's like who whose predictions are good here except for the people actually working on the production line, right? And, and they get, say it together. And they say first flight will occur in 2022. So, you know, that's probably as of about a month ago. There's been some quotes from senior leaders saying that. So, well, uh, give us a, a brief briefness on what are like in the public realm, what, what is supposed to be new about this thing? The only things I really kind of understand is Potentially the inlets to the engines are redesigned to increase stealthiness and then potentially like there's going to be a much better kind of mission system, computer open architecture in terms of those types of mission system. Is it, what yeah, else is I, there? What I, do you I, know? Well, what can you say? <laughs> so, you know, I'll say that you know, to go that, to build something that big, you know, a bomber is not a small thing, but to build something that's, you know, big and to do it pretty fast, it's not magic. So it requires some planning choices. So, you know, like the F-117, you know, they, they made some pr choices pretty early on, which was 
we're going to focus our effort and all of our resources on the, the design, so the aerodynamic design of the platform. And everything else in that aircraft, they pulled out of the parts bin from other programs to use, whether the land gear, the engines, the radios, the avionics, the ECS, all came from different aircraft programs that were already had a supply chain. The, the engineering was very well proven and known, and we had models, and we had you know thousands of hours. And so that was how the F-117 was able to deliver something very quickly. I think it went from a sketch on a napkin to IOC in five years. That was five years or six years, something like that. But no kidding, it was an, a, an idea that uh, was scratched out in a piece of paper to, to not just flying, but declared IOC. So that's, uh, that's remarkably fast. Obviously, building a bomber is that's, you know, considerably larger than an F-117 takes uh, more materials and more, you know, more manpower and equipment to do. But, you know, if you go that fast, there's, you got to be, you got to be raiding the parts bins uh, from what exists. So, you know, do you really need to develop a brand new engine? Probably not. Do you really need to develop, you know, another whatever system, you name the system? Well, if, if it exists, then we've already done the the R&D and the manufacturing and all and built a supply chain to sustain this widget over here. Why can't we just leverage what we've already invested in? So, and then you pair that with, uh, with an open mission systems where, you know, you don't, you know, it's government reference architecture. So you bring your algorithms and see what happens. And so you ha- you kind of open source it that way. And I think you, you have a recipe for something that's uh, going to be awesome. Maybe we'll see. Well, the, the first year of funding for the next generation bomber slash LRSB slash B2021 was actually FY06. And then it kind of got slow rolled and then got reintroduced. And then maybe that was a good thing, right? I think the B21, they kind of are hailing. Yeah, but uh, but, one of the first DevSecOps kinds of platforms. Yeah, when you go back and uh, so think about, yeah, the LRSB probably started what year, 2006? I think NGB was 2006 and then LRSB kind of revamped in. Think about the timeline. I think... How, what year did Northrop win the contract? And they knew it because it was contested. So the GAO did the mediation, right? And so that was only, uh, what is it, 2021? That was probably, what, six years ago? Seven yeah, years they ago? really started ramping up funding, FY15, yeah. 16, and then 17 was the first time they got over a billion. Yeah, but as far as their contract, they actually won the program contract. Like they were still in a bidding with, I think Lockheed was the other one. And maybe he's one other. I don't remember. But yeah. So you look at the contract award to the, the ramp up of the funding and what you're getting out of that's uh, that's pretty quick. And like I said, there's, it's not magic. There's, there's, you know, there's probably reducing risk by leveraging what exists, but we'll see. And one thing I heard recently was the air force has a contract RFP out there to reverse engineer uh, parts for the old B2. So like they've, haven't built this thing in a long time, and apparently these uh, components are extinct. Yep, that's uh, parts obsolescence in our uh, supply chains, especially when you have a, a small aircraft fleet like that. It's uh, very difficult. Next one, we got SecAF to Congress. Let us retire aircraft or we can't beat China from Defense News. It was a frequent occurrence during my confirmation process to have a senator agree with me about the significance of the Chinese threat. And in the same breath, to tell me that under no circumstances could the take your pick and KC-10s or MQ-9s in that senator's state be retired, nor could any base in his or her state ever be closed or lose manpower that would cause impact to the local economy, he said, which is Kendall. We will not succeed against a well-resourced and strategic competitor if we insist on keeping every 
every legacy system we have, he said. I do not understand the, I do under, understand the political straits here, and I'm happy to work with Congress to find a better mechanism to make the changes we need, but we must move forward, Kendall added. So here's the retire it or not, you know, legacy or not whole debate here, but, you know, Kendall coming out strong and kind of actually kind of calling political interests out a little bit, which is interesting and bold. Yeah, it's funny. Like it's, it's completely obvious and I don't think anyone hides it, but no one really says it. So it's one of those unwritten rules in the, you know, in the beltway, all politics are local. And it turns out all military programs are local too. And so if you're on the, if you're on the right side of the aisle, you probably see that as a, the capitalistic value of a plant or a a unit on a base with a specific mission in your state or district, right? Well, then on the left, you probably see the social value of all the jobs the government is providing, whether it's directly um, or indirectly. And so there's a, you know, you can't win, you can't win on either side. It's a lose battle. But I'd tell you, the example of some of these aircraft and some of these systems, you know, back when you look back in sequestration, when, you know, you do the analysis when they were had to make some choices, like vertical cuts is, is the only way that you save money. So reducing a fleet, it's kind of a stopgap. It doesn't really get you a whole bunch, but if you can divest a, the whole platform, the tooth, the tail goes away. So everything from the supply chains, whether it's like a CLS contract, or just the O&M costs, you know, that goes away, but so do the things like the, uh, the depots and your spares pools and all of these other things. So, you know, when they were looking at killing the A-10, I forgot, I think it was three or $4 billion that they anticipated that they could save, but that was because they were going to, they were going to kill the entire from tooth to tail. So all that stuff. And then those maintainers were going to shift over to the F-35 program, which is why the air force didn't add any more maintainers into their, uh, their manning construct. Well, then we couldn't get rid of the A-10s and we kept getting F-35s. Now we have a maintainer shortage. So, But yeah, I, I definitely appreciate the the, politi- the politics behind it, but I also think it's ridiculous that we can't as a, a superpower or a first world nation, like, just, can we just agree that we probably have too many C-130s? Yes. We can, yes, can we agree? How many too many C-130s? And then, okay. And then after that, it's all right, where do we adjust the fleet? And so... You know, there's a lot of conversations that we had. You know, we have C-130s that do hurricane hunting. That is not a military mission. That is a NOAA mission, which actually ha- operates a fleet of P-8s or, uh, or P-3s, sorry, P-3s. But yet we have a reserve C-130 squadron that does hurricane hunting and everyone's fine with it. Not an inherent military mission. The RC-26 is probably the biz- biggest example of, of this dysfunction that we see. Are you familiar with the RC-26? No. Oh, if- let me tell you about this thing. Okay, so so the Air Force has this this twin prop aircraft called an RC twenty six. Uh, I think it's the Guardian. It's basically an ISR aircraft. It's really old. It doesn't have a, really any good capabilities, and there's only eleven in the whole military. Eleven. Dude, they're given the, aerial footage of flood damage. Come on, <laughs> an inherent military mission, right? Yeah, okay, so there's only eleven in the whole military. And they're all in the Air National Guard. There's none in the active duty Air Force. They're all in the Air National Guard. Uh, No combatant commander has asked for it. No one wants it. And it's really just kind of relegated into a flying club in the Guard. And then they use it for domestic missions every now and then. Again, assessing homeland security. Like, got it. Not an inherent military mission. But it costs $30 million a year to sustain those 11 aircraft that have no mission. 
And do you know why? Do you know why we still have those aircraft, even though no one wants whose district are they in? Ah, that's the key. So no, so in Illinois, where they're at, the representative Kinzinger, he actually flies. He's an RC-26 pilot and a congressman. And so he sponsored language back in 2020, the 2020 NDAA, that blocked the retirement of the aircraft until the DOD basically delivered a plan to Congress or report about how they're going to cover the capability gap. So then what do they do is the Pentagon goes, okay, we'll go do our homework. We'll go tell you why we shouldn't have this. They deliver the report. And then they changed the law and says, you can't retire him anyways. We don't care what your report says. <laughs> like this is like the biggest example of, of like, for the love of God, if we can't all agree to get rid of 11 RC-26 that cost $30 million a year to sustain that have no mission, we are royally fucked. On, a year for yes. each one per, uh, per for, unit? No, it's uh, it's for all of them. So it's like okay. $2.7 a year. Per, and, you know, it's it funny because... There is option C, and I don't. And you know, I kind of jokingly say this in my inner circles uh, sometimes. Like, there's another option. Like, you, you know, we're, you won't let us retire them, but nothing in the law says we have to fly them. And so, I'm like, all right, we're gonna have them on the books, but they're all grounded. Like, we're not flying them, and we're putting all those people, and we're gonna send them to other places to do other things because this is a waste of time. And you would actually, it'd be cheaper to ground them and send all of those people. To other bases and other missions to, to actually do stuff that matters than to keep pouring money into that program but that's politics rc26 there's your poster child well, it looks like uh mexico has two peru has three trinidad has two venezuela has one. Oh well venezuela has it i mean that's i mean, clearly need to keep it barbados has two <laughs> this is what we got here you know there's an interesting there is a great good quote from adam smith on this about the incentive problems that congress has and he says, quote, when I was first elected to my first term in Congress, my first big vote was whether or not to build more B-2 bombers. A good chunk of it was built in my district, or as my MLA at the time used to joke, that the wing was built in my district, and the whole thing is pretty much a wing, so you can gather how much was built in my district. So I didn't think it was a very good, but I didn't think it was a very good expenditure of $2 billion to keep buying them. I voted against building more B-2 bombers. And Northrop never forgave him, of course. But he thought it was the right thing to do, and he still got reelected, or otherwise he wouldn't be giving us this story, right? I guess, That's right. I guess. So what was the moral of the, the story? Like he yeah. made a hard choice, and it, and it was not that he recovered. That was the moral of the story, right? Pretty much. I mean, okay, when you think good. about it, like, I mean, how many topics are there for people voting on you know like there's just that's just one thing and you gotta kind of like vote the package deal so yeah and that's yeah that's the other problem is the defense policy bill the ndaa is you know three to four thousand pages long now and it's got so many nuanced things and at the end of the day when once it's all built by the committees and it and it goes through conference and then it actually goes put to a vote i mean it's binary you either vote for all four thousand pages or you don't you know, if there's, and so everything in there, you can, yeah. So the more contentious things are, and that's kind of why there's a lot of platitudes in there. Like if we just give a little bit to everyone, it's just enough to get everyone to vote. Yes. Yeah. And so that's where you see a lot of these, you know, divesting programs, you know, you get enough, I mean, even in the Senate, you know, you get, you know, most of the votes are kind of party line plus or minus, you know, 10% anyways, but if you can get three or four people to switch their mind because something impacts their district, and you go, oh man, like you, you've just, you've stalled progress. So yeah, it is what it is. That's uh, it's not perfect, but it's the best we got. So 
That's cute. I still believe in it. Brown, Air Force serious about E7 Wedgetail from breaking defense. The Air Force is looking seriously at buying the E7 Wedgetail to replace the aging Boeing E3 Century Airborne Warning and Control System AWACS planes with an eye on the 23 budget. Boeing originally built the Wedgetail for the Royal Australian Air Force, signing a developmental contract in 1999. The UK announced in March 2019 it intended to buy five evens but in march of this year decided to cut the number to three when you look at the when you look at the future ideally you'd be able to look at capability that could be defensible he said but the wedge tail could fill the gap in the meantime that was brown who was saying this so it looks like he's they're just saying we're gonna miss some kind of capability in terms of isr and we're just gonna buy an e7 wedge tail until we can figure out something that's more survivable i mean this these things don't really look like you know, they're just a flying plane, right? So those things will be easy to shoot out. But what's your thoughts here? I mean, is this just kind of like a capability filler? Since other countries are kind of buying it, there's kind of a line, there's kind of a, you know, a supply chain there that exists. So we might as well use it. Yeah. So this is, this is interesting. So before we kind of get into that, the probably the number one thing that people who follow the Air Force and some of our decisions and, and talking points would say is, this is just like the J-Stars problem, but but the J-Stars was old and decrepit and it wasn't survivable and it was a big, you know, Boeing aircraft and, you know, it was a 707 that converted cattle haulers <laughs> that we used, but yeah, they're old when we got them and they're really old now and we're going to get rid of the J-Stars, but we don't want another plane because the plane will get shot down and we need to do this, you know, distributed architecture. And that's where ABMS started. It started as a J-Stars replacement and then it transformed into a C2 something or other. We'll see what it is. <laughs> Internet but, of things. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The uh, dot mill of things, right? Isn't that what the, one of the things? That's what but, they call. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. The, somewhat the same story. It starts the same way. Hey, I've got an aging big wing command and control platform. This one just happens to be airborne, air to air command and control, where J stars was air to ground command and control. So it, the two stories rhyme. So what's, what makes this different? I think a few things make it different. I think you're in your air to ground rule, you are inherently getting pulled into something that has lots and lots of surface to air threats uh, because they're on the ground. Whereas in a air to air, you're not necessarily wed to the ground into a, a geographically constrained. It can be over like vast oceans if it was in the Pacific. So there's definitely different use cases where it is definitely provide some value. The other part of the story is I think everyone knows the AWACS, the Century, is, is itself old and decrepit and falling apart. It's also based on the Boeing 707, the same thing that JSTAR says. So those things, I, and there's probably, there's something like a dozen that are even flyable still. They're probably less than that now, but they're aging out really quickly and they're falling apart. And so... If we could, if we can get, I think the, the, the logic is if we can get some of these wedge tails, it'll get us another 10 years until this ABMS thing is probably mature enough to do this distributed airborne AMTI, airborne moving target indicator, whether it's through a distributed apertures through its space or something. And so we don't need this, like, you know, this big juicy target with a flying billboard on its back. But the other part of it is, you know, if you're in a air to ground scenario, so like, why couldn't you just a wedge tail for air to ground. I think the logic is like at some point you have curvature of the earth. So you have to be so high to see so far with your sensor where again, air to air, you're not necessarily limited by the curvature of the earth. You're labeled by your radar range equations. So the power of your radar that you're putting out. So I think your ability, your cost benefit 
for an E7 is way higher than doing anything else in the near term. Because uh, at some point you're going to lose the E and you're not going to have anything to replace it. So interesting there. You know, it seemed like, you know, at least with the J stars, they kind of offloaded that capability to now like a space GMTI. And then ABMS just kind of, it was the, the, the kind of filler, but then it seemed like it's kind of gravitated into its own thing. Yeah. The, so the interesting part about it, which again, it'll be really curious of how it ties in the C2 when a, how ABMS ties into JAD C2. And I don't mean ABMS, like the ABMS that everyone's talking about now. I mean, the original ABMS. And so JSTARS has basically two elements that I don't think people understand. There's the yeah, it's a big radar that looks at the ground, right? But why does it look at the ground? And that's the ABCCC mission. So there's a joint team that flies on it. So we have army people assigned to these units flying on the JSTARS that are providing the information to coordinate the battlefield for the army. And so as we as we move into now ABMS, what it is now in JADC2, it'll be really curious to see who is going to do that. Is, the, is some joint... Space Force Army team going to be providing this kind of information off of, you know, a, an ops floor or a sensor stack, or is it an Air Force Space Force team with an army or, or is it just going to be like, oh, it's out there and, you know, use it if you want to. And none of no units will be co-located. So the JSTARS thing is really interesting uh, in that regard, but the witch tail, I mean, it's basically you're buying a better ETH with a with much better platform and a much better radar with much, much more capability. Oh, by the time we're, we're wrapping up here, but I did want to mention that Israel is also in discussions with the U.S. about procuring the tranche of advanced F-15s. So what do you make of that? I, I know you're kind of a fan. Actually, I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, this debate. Okay, they're buying 50 F-35s. They're also buying F-15s, potentially, it looks like. What's the difference between fourth gen and fifth gen? And, you know, how do these two work together? Man, what a loaded question. And uh, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. So, you know, we were, I think we were talking about this before we started. So the, so the, first of all, there's the F-35 news. You know, they fly F-35s. Um, they want to put new equipment in them. So they have, a, they've been doing that with software for the FI for, for years. They have a clause that allows them to modify the aircraft. They've been doing that with all of their own weapon systems forever. So all of their, uh, they've been doing that for a while. And that they use their indigenous industrial base to do that. So that's the F-35 updates. The F-15, it's interesting is, you know, I think, I think General Kelly had a really good, he's a, he's a king of one-liners. He had a pretty good quote about, you know, the, the only F-15 versus F-35 debate you hear is inside Washington. And it's, I mean, it's true. So yeah, out in the field, if you had a, if you had a, a fleet of F-35s, or a fleet of F-15 EXs or whatever they're going to be called, ISs or SIs or whatever they are for Israel if they end up buying them. Neither of them can do everything by themselves. And so the shared attributes of the two models together creates a, a synergistic effect where one plus one equals three. I can generate more capability by having two F-15 EXs and two F-35s versus just four F-35s or just four F-15s. And so the combination of attributes gives you a lot more options and you can mix and match those attributes. So if everyone, if I had an entire fleet of aircraft and they were all the same RCS, I would know exactly where to look. But if I put them in a very diversified signal environment of different RCSs, then it becomes much harder because now you're 
you have equipment gain issues and all kinds of other things that go with it. Then there's a the human dynamics, the things that you see are the things that you're going to be paying attention to and the things that maybe you don't see as, as well, maybe you forget about them. And so I've seen that happen quite a bit where the, the fourth gen helped the fifth gen stay alive just because they're there. So that's a thing. But then you look at like, you know, all the other attributes, range, speed, payload, and then you get into the things that people love to talk about, which is like power, thrust, maneuverability. Like those are eh, not as important anymore. I would say they look great at air shows and that's about it. You know, when you look at software and the sensors and, and computing power, size, weight, and power, you know, you're the F-35, if you've seen an F-35 uh, sitting next to an F-15, you'll, you'll notice that they are not the same size. So the, the F-15 has, has a little bit more uh, room to put in some bigger sensor arrays and bigger power. And obviously the bigger power, because it's not hiding, it can, you know, it's like spinal tap. It could just turn some of the stuff up to 11. It doesn't have to worry about hiding in the signal environment and it could just blast power out. And so you compare that with some processing and then they share some, you know, they share some equipment back and forth and Again, the optionality of having those attributes together, you know, that's really where it's at. So you're, you know, what makes a fifth gen, it's, you know, it changes, you know, 20 years ago, you would have said, oh, it's because it has, you know, sensor fusion and computing power and these sensors and, and super cruise and super maneuverability and LO. And, and now as you know, you start picking that apart, you go, well, F-35 doesn't super cruise and it doesn't have super maneuverabilities. It's still a fifth gen. You go, yeah, 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 sure is. Okay. We'll have an F-15 that has a you know, some of the, the highest, the highest processing power of any combat aircraft in the world. And it has a bunch of sensors and a whole bunch of things going on. Does that make it fifth gen? Like, no, like, why not? <laughs> that was part of the definition. So it's, it, that's why people start coming up with these other terms, like four and a half or four, four gen plus. And I, I think the latest one I heard, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. It, it's the, it's generation 4.6. Just to even make it more discriminating, I have no idea. I heard that saw that somewhere. I'm like, I please, I please hope that's a typo from a reporter, because <laughs> oh my god, I can't take any more Like we we put these like titles on these things, and then we become constrained by our you know the bias that we inherently create when we start giving things labels. And it's like no, it's an aircraft. Yes, here it has some attributes, and this aircraft is an aircraft, and it has some attributes. But when you start bending them together. You know, it's interesting. What makes a fighter versus a bomber? You know, that's another great discussion is like, well, if you had a bomber that was maneuverable and could shoot missiles, is it still a bomber? Or if I have a fighter that can drop a ton of bombs, is it still a fighter? Well, so the, F, get the, the FB 111, right? There you go. Or you just, or just put the two together. It's an FB now. Sorry. But I know but that they're going to have a version of that, right? Because I heard that they're going to outfit it for nukes. Ah, uh, that's well, that was so that's been in the, that's the plan the whole time. So but that doesn't make it a bomber, right? So we have, yeah, we have, we've got the fourth gen. Say there goes, I'm using labels now. So you got me doing it. But we have, you know, F-15s and F-16s. I've been carrying nukes for, you know, 20, 30 years. So, but they're not, they're, they're fighters because they have an F designation. So, and then just to screw it up even more, the, uh, the F-117 is actually a bomber and we gave it an F designation. So just to screw with everyone, I think. Oh yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. I never actually thought about that. <laughs> But, you know, it always made, I always look to the foreign military sales to kind of like validate, you know, decisions essentially in the U.S. because it's nice to have that kind of external validation and especially when it's Israel. So it's interesting that, you know, they're going for the F and that kind of potentially if they do end up procuring it, then, you know, there's some validation. And that's all we got time for this week. Mike Benitez from the Merge newsletter. Everybody make sure you sign up for that at themerge.co. Thanks for joining me and we'll talk to you next time.
See ya. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.